Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Last Lord's Day, we covered the first 21 verses of the psalm, and so we'll pick up where we left off, and we'll begin reading there in verse 22 of Psalm 22, and read through the end of the psalm. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It shall be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us now as we come to your word and as we seek to understand it and as we seek to see glorious things in it. We pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts and soften them. And that you would help us to receive your word and store it up in our hearts and seek to live every day in light of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we were introduced to the Psalm of the Cross, Psalm 22. And we considered it as something of a soundtrack of the cross. Not something that was playing from the loudspeakers. There as Jesus was crucified, but rather something of a soundtrack playing in the heart and mind of Jesus Christ, even as he gave verbal expression to it on the cross. And we saw that as we considered verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, records those very words for us as Jesus hung there on the cross. And in John's Gospel, as we just read from John chapter 19, we read those final words, those closing words of Jesus Christ before he yielded up his spirit. He said, it is finished. Well, at the end of Psalm 22, just as it began with Jesus' words on the cross, I believe that this psalm also ends with Jesus' words on the cross. If you look at that last phrase there in verse 31, that he has done this. At least that's how it's translated in the New King James. 
But if you were to look at the Hebrew rendering, all you would see is a verb in the masculine form with no object. This is supplied, or if you have a translation that says he has done it, or he has accomplished it. It is supplied and required by our English. But there's also really no subject except for the fact that this verb is in the masculine form. And so we have the he there supplied for us because our English requires it. But many scholars are of the mind that you could just as equally well translate this verse, even in its Hebrew, into the following phrase, it is finished. Of course, still supplying the it. And so many scholars are convinced that Jesus not only spoke the very first words of this psalm, but actually the very last words of this psalm, giving us something of an inclusio or bookends to indicate to us that the entirety of this psalm is what was on the heart and mind of Jesus Christ as he was crucified. Well, here's what we need to take from this reality then as we continue to walk through Psalm 22 this evening. We need to understand that in Psalm 22, the Holy Spirit tells us what Jesus was experiencing. It tells us what Jesus was thinking and feeling. It gives us insight into the inner life and thoughts of our Savior. The Son of God made like us in every way. We get a perfect window into the emotional life of our Savior as he accomplished our salvation for us. And we saw this primarily in the first 21 verses as we went through and we got to see the pain and the anguish and the suffering of Christ on the cross. And we followed that anguish and we followed those cries for help, uh, those cries for salvation and for deliverance through death. And then we ended last week there at the end of verse 21 with this acknowledgement that you have answered me. Christ acknowledging that all his prayers, all his cries have been answered by the Father. And so let's pick up then after this pivotal or transitional verse in Psalm 22 as we considered the life of the Messiah As he suffered upon the cross in those first 21 verses, let's now look at the life of the Messiah in the wake of answered prayer. The first cluster of verses we'll take together is there in uh, verses 22 through 24, where we see that Jesus preaches to his people. As we go through some of these clusters uh, this evening, I want us to consider a few myths, uh, myths that we may have heard or we may have even thought or believed ourselves. And the first myth that I want to dispel this evening as we look at this first cluster of verses and the fact that Jesus preaches to his people, the first myth is that at the cross, Jesus thought of you above all. And I say it that way because I remember when I was a Christian, early on in my Christian walk, 
uh, singing a Michael W. Smith song that went something like this. Crucified, laid behind the stone, you live to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. I remember singing those words almost on a weekly basis. Sad thing was, that wasn't the reality of Jesus on the cross. Compare that with what we read here in verse 22. This continues to be that meditation of Christ upon the cross. I will declare your name to my brethren. You see here in verse 22 that in the wake of answered prayer, we see the two things of utmost importance to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, or to the Christ who is going to be resurrected because he's already seeing through the answered prayers of his deliverance through the cross. And Jesus says, I will declare your name to my brother. The name of God and his brothers in that order are what Jesus thought of, and committed himself to on the cross. I will declare your name to my brothers. If you ever wonder what Jesus loves most, if you ever wonder what Jesus thought of above all, as he accomplished our salvation, he thought of the glory of God, the name of God that he would go on to declare the character, the substance, the weightiness of God. That's what the name of God entails. And it's so precious to him that he commits himself to declaring it in the wake of his crucifixion with the assurance that God has heard and answered his prayers, with the assurance that he will be raised to continue living and ministering as the Messiah. Of course, this shouldn't surprise us then that Jesus thought of God above all. He didn't commit idolatry and violate the first commandment ever in any part of his life. He's always thought of his God and the name of his God above all things. And it shouldn't surprise us that in the wake of Christ's crucifixion and then exaltation into his resurrected state and glorified state that Jesus would commit himself to declare the name of God to his brothers, to reveal the character of God to his brothers. In fact, we see that that was always the mission and purpose of Jesus Christ. John told us in John 1, 18, that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And so Jesus commits himself to doing what he came to earth to do in the first place. To declare the never-seen Father, the never-seen God, whom he came from his bosom to declare him perfectly to us. You may be asking at this particular point, 
Well, how does Jesus today continue to carry out this commitment that he made upon the cross? Well, the Apostle Paul explains it to us. If you were to look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul said this to the church in Ephesus. And I emphasize in Ephesus because if you look closely at Jesus' life, whether in his earthly ministry or in those 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus never physically went to Ephesus. But listen to what Paul says to the church in Ephesus decades after Christ's crucifixion. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. That's what Paul says about Jesus to the church in Ephesus. We must see here that Christ is still fulfilling the commitment he made here in verse 22. To preach to his people. To declare the name of God to his brothers. One more stop in the New Testament before we move to the next verse. And that's Hebrews chapter 2 verses 10 through 12. And notice the teaching point of the Holy Spirit here on this passage. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And then verse 12 of Hebrews 2 goes on to quote this very verse here. In Psalm 22, verse 22. But I want you to catch the point here that the Holy Spirit is bringing out in the New Testament in light of this particular verse. The Holy Spirit says Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren. Those who are united to him by faith and those who are now suffering in the flesh even as he suffered And that's what we need to take to heart here. No, Christ didn't think exclusively of us above all when he was on the cross. He thought of the glory of his Father above all. But when we sing Psalm 22 this month, we can be assured that we are his brothers. And that although we weren't thought of above all, We do play a very important place in the heart and mind and affections of Jesus Christ. Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. And not only that, but he's not ashamed to do that as he declares to us the name of God. I remember one time... In public, when my older sister and I decided to act in a certain way, and we decided to act in a certain way that did not meet my mom's approval, but we were doing it intentionally to try to embarrass her in a public setting. I'm not going to go into the details to tell you what we were doing. If you want to know those, you can ask her, as she may be in town for a bit longer. 
But we were acting in such a way that my mom was ashamed to identify with us. She was, in fact, trying to create separation and distance from us so that people couldn't look at her and say, oh, wow, look at her children. But think about Jesus. And think of all the shameful things that you and I have done. Some intentional, some unintentional. Nevertheless, all the things we've done, not in accordance with God's revealed will, are all shameful things. And yet, we see in Psalm 22, verse 22, and reaffirmed for us in Hebrews chapter 2, that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Those who are of faith, he calls family, unashamed. Well, verse 23 takes the momentum of the previous verse and issues forth the call to worship, which goes out to the descendants of Jacob and to the offspring of Israel. What do we make of these titles, descendants of Jacob and offspring of Israel? Some of you might be trained to think that, well, if you see these kinds of phrases, God is only speaking to the old covenant people, or God is only speaking to Jews. That's another myth I want to dispel this evening as this call to worship goes forth from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, it's probably helpful to identify who Jacob and Israel are. Jacob and Israel are one and the same person. In fact, it was Jacob that God named Israel. And so as you move through the Old Testament, you sometimes see these two names used interchangeably to refer to the people of God collectively. And the reason why that is the case is because the people of God are the inheritors of the promises of God as they came to the patriarchs. The patriarchs being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And although the Old Testament usually uses descendants of Israel or offspring of Jacob or something of that nature, when we come to the New Testament, it's Abraham who usually gets the priority or the emphasis, the first of the patriarchs rather than the last of the patriarchs. So what do we make of this language, descendants of Jacob and offspring of Israel? Can we ever rightly and appropriate, rightly appropriate these words to ourselves as new covenant Christians? Well, the answer is, of course. In fact, it is only to those who are Christians that can truly and fully appropriate these words to themselves as Christ speaks them here. Galatians 3.29, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. If you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring. So the Holy Spirit teaches us through the Apostle Paul that the church of Jesus Christ is the children of the patriarchs. The children are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Israel. And the church of Jesus Christ, then, 
is the inheritor of the promises made to them. Verse 24 then, as we can appropriate these words to ourselves as those who are Christ's, we see the ongoing beauty and blessing of being the offspring of Israel and the brethren of Christ. We see here that in verse 24, as goes the Christ, so go his brothers. In fact, the whole first half of Psalm 22 spoke about the afflictions of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see in this verse that Christ is acknowledging to us that his afflictions were not despised. They were not abhorred. They were not ignored. They did not fall on deaf ears. And although the face of God was hidden from him for a moment, although he was forsaken of God for a moment, we see that it was only for a season. And that the shining face of God came back, breaking through the dark sky like the sun after a multi-day storm. And so Jesus is assuring here to those that he calls to worship, the descendants of Israel, his brothers. He's assuring them that their cries will never fall on deaf ears, even as his cries certainly did not. But when he cried to him, he heard. And so we see here then in this passage that Christ is preaching to his people. He's declaring the name of his God to his brothers. He's calling them to worship which is why we often at times have preaching as a staple of worship. In fact, always have it as a staple of worship. And then we see here the element of prayer being instructed on by Jesus Christ to his brothers. Before we move on to the next cluster of verses, I want to dispel one more myth, and that is the myth That Jesus Christ was heard simply because he was the Son of God. And I take that that myth on because if you were to look at Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews 5 verse 7, the Holy Spirit tells us why Jesus was heard when he cried to God in his affliction, as verse 24 recounts for us. Hebrews 5, 7 says this, In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear or was heard because of his reverence. It would be presumptuous to think that God heard the Lord Jesus Christ simply because he was his son. And it would be presumptuous for us to ever think from a verse like this that just because we are Jesus' brothers and sisters, that we constantly have the listening ear of God. 
That just is not the case when we look at Scripture. The New Testament tells us that although Jesus was a son, the reason why he was heard when he cried to his God was because of his reverence, because of his godly fear, because he humbled himself in fear under the rule of God. And if you were to survey all the times that the children of Israel cried out to God with lack of reverence. Those times when they would cry out to God for help, but then go quickly secure a political and military alliance with one of the surrounding nations to be their protection. Any time they cried out to God without reverence and godly fear, God didn't answer, even though they were his children. And so we do well to remember, even as we read these words here in verse 24, that when he cried to him, he heard. It's clearly because of his reverence or godly fear. And that's what we can't miss here. It would be presumptuous to think that God will solely hear us when we pray to him simply on our status of being brothers and sisters of Christ. As amazing of a status as that is. But it is the presence of godly fear. Revering the one to whom we pray. And living life constantly in reverence of the God to whom we pray. Of course, this is the exact aspect of the Christian life that Christ is bracketing this reality of himself being heard. Here in verse 24, in case we missed it, Jesus was calling those who fear him to worship. There at the end of verse 23. And as we move into verse 25, we see that Jesus will pay his vows before those who fear him. So as we sing Psalm 22 this month, let us remember to do so in reverence and awe in godly fear of our God. As those who fear him as our sovereign creator and redeemer. Our affliction will never keep us. will never keep God from hearing our prayers rather. Only our lack of reverence. And so we do well to heed Peter's words. As he spoke to the Christians in their time of their exile. And he said, and if you call on the father. If you pray to the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. May we never rest on our laurels or our status of simply being the brothers and sisters of Christ, but always strive to be brothers and sisters of Christ who fear and conduct our lives in the fear of God. Well, the next cluster we see there is verses 25 through 28, where Jesus continues to lead his people in praise. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly, verse 25 says. And here I want to dispel another myth. And the myth is that small groups are better than assembled congregational worship. 
Perhaps you've heard this very reality or you've heard this marketed before. Well, that's a hard conclusion to draw uh, from Scripture. Jesus says, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I want you to notice three things from this verse. That worship is theocentric. It's a fancy way of saying that worship is God-centered. My praise shall be of you, Jesus says to his Father. Secondly, Jesus mentions the great assembly. Now, the idea of the great assembly comes from Old Testament temple language. The place where all of God's people, even if they lived hundreds of kilometers away, would convene three times a year for the three great festivals. It would have been a time where hundreds and thousands of people would have come together to worship God publicly and corporately. And of course, the Church of Jesus Christ takes that temple imagery into itself as we are the temple of living stones being built one upon another into that great assembly. But there are movements today like house church movements that prize themselves in being small and secluded. There's nothing wrong with being small. There's no number that Scripture ever prescribes to us that you must be this size to be considered an assembly or a congregation of the Lord. Of course, the RPCNA knows this well. We're fond of quoting Zechariah 4 that, uh, that we shouldn't despise the day of small things or small beginnings. The idea being that even the Lord rejoices in the day of small things. But we sometimes fall into the error in the opposite direction, despising what Jesus calls here the great assembly. I know I've heard this kind of language, that those large churches or the institutional church is just a place where you can't connect. There's too many people. In fact, we can get more out of it if we just gather together or stay at home and in, with a group of two or three and we just study our Bibles together. In fact, many churches have adopted this model and let things like small groups replace or even encourage the small group to replace the corporate gathering of the large assembly to forsake public worship. I think Spurgeon says it well when he says of this verse, observe how Jesus loves the public praises of the saints. It would be wicked on our part to despise the twos and threes. But on the other hand, let not the little company snarl at the greater assemblies as though they were necessarily less pure and less approved. For Jesus loves the praise of the great congregation or the great assembly. And if you didn't catch it when... Spurgeon was talking about the twos or threes. He's talking about that verse in Matthew 18 where Jesus says, where two or three gather together in my name, there I am with them. 
But we cannot use a verse like that to undermine what Jesus is saying here. That my praise of you shall be in the great assembly. And so whenever you hear an argument about the twos or threes used to undermine our corporate duty and responsibility of gathering where Jesus loves to praise and lead his people in praise, we do well to remember that the original context of Matthew 18 is not public worship where two or three gather together in my name, but rather it's the context of church discipline where two or three overseers in a church meeting of the session decide a case of church discipline to bind or to loose one from the body of Christ. It's not. It never was meant to be a blanket blessing for any gathering of just any two or three Christians. And so hopefully this verse and a right interpretation of Matthew 18 helps secure in your mind that Jesus commits himself to praise God in the great assembly as he leads his brothers and sisters there. The third observation I want to make of verse 25 is what happens in the latter half where Jesus says, I will pay my vows before those who fear him. It's here that we see the element of vows in public worship. And this could be used to dispel another myth that sometimes circulates. The myth that taking vows to uphold biblical doctrines and commitments is a man-made imposition. In fact, Jesus said at one point in his life to not vow, but to simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. But once again, we run into some interpretive difficulties here if we take statements like that to undermine other places of Scripture rather than to clarify. If Jesus meant to forbid all vow-taking, then we'd have quite the difficulty on our hands here as Jesus commits himself to paying his vows before those who fear him. Paying his vows before the great assembly. Of course, Jesus didn't mean any such thing. The context in which Jesus spoke about not vowing was in the context of abuse, swearing oaths because one's character and credibility was already compromised. He's saying, no, be people who are a people of your word. Your yes should mean yes, and people should believe you. Your no should mean no, and people should believe you. You shouldn't have to swear by anything for people to believe you. So Jesus here commits to paying his vows in the midst of public worship, as is the context here, before those who fear him. Now, nowhere in Scripture do we find a list of these vows uh, identified specifically. But we could think of the many verbal commitments that Christ made to those who fear him. He said, I will build my church. That's a commitment we know that Christ is making good on, fulfilling and paying in our midst every Lord's day. I will never leave you as orphans. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. It is those kinds of things that Christ continues to fulfill in the midst of those who fear him. 
Psalm 22 then reminds us that Jesus Christ will pay these vows before us. And the fact that that is the case, we can draw from this activity of our Lord Jesus Christ in the context of public worship that vow-making, vow-taking, vow-renewing, vow-fulfilling are all part of a biblical element of worship. And so in the RPCNA, as many of you have done, when we take vows of membership or vows towards our children to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, we take vows um, and we renew those vows from time to time, we are doing so as an element of public worship, patterned after Christ's own authoritative example as one who fulfills and pays his vows in the context of those who fear him. And so far from being a man-made imposition, vow-taking in the assembly is patterned after the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who leads his people in worship. In verse 26, we see that as Christ continues to lead his people in worship, that there is great satisfaction to be found in him, especially for the poor. And we've considered already from Isaiah 3, the poor and the care that God has for them. Of course, we're not restricted to our understanding of the poor being the economic poor, but the poor being those who are humble and those who are meek and those who look to God as their only source to provide their deepest needs. And we see here that the poor shall eat and be satisfied, that those who seek him will praise the Lord. And then we have this wonderful exclamatory phrase, let your heart live forever. And so as Jesus continues to lead his people in praise, we see another aspect of our public worship or an element of worship, and that is the eating unto satisfaction and unto everlasting life. Verse 26 then points us to a verse like we find in John six fifty four, where Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Those who feed upon Christ, the meek, the humble who come to Christ as their meal that will bring them into eternity. Those who look to his broken body and shed blood as the only means unto life are the ones who will be satisfied in him and find eternal life through him. Of course, that is through the element of the sacraments of the Lord's Supper that Jesus continues to lead his people in as he leads them in worship. We also see that this reality, as Jesus Christ declares the name of his God to his brothers, as he continues to call the descendants of the patriarchs to worship his God, we see that this reality is to be one that extends over the face of the earth. Verses 27 and 28 bring to mind the very 
great commission that Christ has given to his church in the wake of his crucifixion and resurrection. That his death and the benefits of his death are for the salvation of the ends of the world. And there's a beautiful flow in verse 27 as Jesus speaks of it here. And the flow can be summarized by these three words. Remember, repent, and revere. If you ever want to try to summarize the Great Commission in three R words, it's remember, repent, and revere. It's the nations remembering that they were created by God. It's the nations being called to remember the one that they have forgotten in the fall into sin and misery and death. And being called to remember that God, then they're called to turn from their sin and to turn to him. That is repentance. And of course, one who has a repentant heart, one who has forsaken their sin and turned to the Lord is one who cannot have a heart that is unmoved, and so we have reverence. Those who come before the Lord to worship him and revere him. And so that's what we have in verses 27 through 28, as the Lord Jesus continues to lead his people in worship. The picture is to be an ever-growing, ever-diversifying family of God as it extends over the face of the earth as people, as nations, remember, repent, and revere. Well, as we move to verse 29, and we continue to think about the broad scope and sweep of Christ's redemptive benefits, there's also an aspect that is hinted at here in 29 about even those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. It's a reminder in this verse that, yes, there will be those who do remember, and there will be those who do repent, and those who do revere the Lord Jesus Christ, and they do so to the saving of their souls. But there will also be those who go down to the dust, who die. And verse 29 tells us of what will happen to those who go down to the dust in death, those who cannot keep themselves alive, even they shall bow before him, verse 29 says. Which dispels another myth I want us to briefly cover, and that's the myth of when I die, I will slip back into non-existence like before I was born. This verse reminds us that even after death, that there is a duty to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. That his dominion is not diminished, even as he rules over the nations, verse 28 says. Verse 29 extends that thought in telling us that his rule even extends beyond the grave. This verse reminds us that there is existence after death, that there is consciousness after death. 
In fact, there will be a final resurrection for all people, those who fear him and those who never feared him. But verse 29 is clear that no matter what you've done, there will be a bowing, a conscious bowing before him for all who have died. Of course, Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11, teaches us this very thing. That after the cross of Jesus Christ, being obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Now this verse and the verse I just read in Philippians 2 does not teach that all will be saved or all will bow willingly. But it is clear that all will bow at the name of Jesus Christ in this life or in the next, in loving reverence, or shattered in perpetual defeat. Of course, Psalm 22 teaches the same thing, especially concerning those who resist Christ's dominion and lordship even now. Psalm 2, verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so verse 29 is a stern Reminder to us that the work of Jesus Christ and the dominion of Jesus Christ matters not only in this life, but even in the life to come. And there will be a bowing before him one way or the other. Well, as we look to the last two verses, we see our last cluster of this psalm, and it's the cluster that I'll title, Jesus' people will continue to preach his finished work. As we see there, that a posterity or a lineage will serve him, and it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness. Psalm 22, verse 22, began with, the declaration of Jesus Christ of the name of his God to his brothers. Well, by the end of Psalm 22, especially in the second half, the psalm has come full circle. And we see now that the declarations do not stop. That the family of God will continue to flourish across the face of the earth, faithfully serving the Lord. And this will happen because they are recounting the Lord's deeds from one generation to the next. And we see that they are declaring his righteousness to a people who will be born. And so in the culmination of this Psalm of the Cross, we see that Jesus saves a people. And he saves a people so they can know the glory of his God. They can know the glory of his Father. And he saves them so that they won't be silent. 
but he saves them to make a family, even a noisy family, that will continue to praise him and proclaim him. They would proclaim his righteousness. It was brought up this morning in our Sunday school about what role do we have if, if salvation is all of God. If God is the author of our salvation, if he is the one who must call us to salvation in himself and faith in him, what role do we have as the church? What role do we have as people who have been saved? Well, here is our role as the church. As we serve him, we are a declaring people not to declare how good we are, not to declare how great Coram Deo is, not to declare how much we can change people's lives and promise people their best life now, but to declare his righteousness. We need to see here then as come to that last phrase of the psalm that he has done this, or as we could rightly translate, it is finished. And we can think about Jesus upon the cross there in John 19, that this wasn't an expression ultimately of despair, but rather of accomplishment. In fact, the greatest accomplishment in the whole world, the saving of a people to be his eternal possession as a family, For there to be brothers and sisters of the eternally begotten and beloved Son of God. A family that would speak constantly of his righteousness and trust solely in his righteousness. That's what Christ accomplished on the cross and in the wake of his answered prayers on the cross. Well, as we close, I want us to just consider briefly, last time we talked about joy. As we sing Psalm 22, that we should be joyful as we sing it, because it was for the joy that Christ endured the cross that was before him. But we didn't talk about why. Why Jesus could have so much joy as he endured the cross. Yes, we know that Hebrews told us that. But why? Why so much joy even through all that suffering and affliction and anguish? I hope that we can see that after considering what has been accomplished and what continues to be accomplished as Jesus preaches to his people, as Jesus leads his people in worship, And as his people continue to grow across the face of the earth, as they hear him preach to them and as they speak of his righteousness, you can see that a family of God is coming together. You can think of it like this, that when Jesus Christ was on the cross, those were his birth pains or his labor pains So that there could be a people that could be called his brothers. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
because he knew that his pain and his suffering would not be in vain. The travail of the cross would produce the fruit of life, the fruit of a family. Many mothers who have given birth to children seem to forget the pain and the suffering that they went through once that child is out of the womb because they see the fruit of their pain and they know that that pain was not in vain. And I think that's what we can see here as we consider the second half of Psalm 22, that we see the fruit of Jesus' pain, and it is the fruit of a family. And so as we sing Psalm 22 this month, let us sing with joy and with fear as the family of God brought about by Christ's suffering on the cross. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he suffered so that our salvation could be accomplished, so that we really and truly could be born again through his spirit, with debts fully paid and with the trail blazed for our salvation by the one who passed through death, who passed through the judgment of your wrath so that you could take to yourself a family. And so we thank you for the birth pains of Jesus Christ, as it were, as he hung on the cross and as he suffered to bring about the family of God that would praise you for all eternity. And so we praise you and thank you and pray that you would receive our worship this evening. Receive it as the praise that you deserve by sending your Son to die for us that we may eternally live with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.